everyone, all of you that have been here many times and those of you that are here uh, for the first time. And if you've not been here um, uh, before, there are some uh, chants that many of us are familiar with that we uh, will engage in the beginning and at the end. If you just kind of listen and follow along, uh, you can you can learn them and um, someone can also direct you to where you can find them uh, at, at some point. Um, but let's begin with a few minutes of, of silent sitting as others continue to arrive.
Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. wonderful to see all of you and to be with you again today. There, are, there was a retreat uh, going on on the last weekend in Lancaster, the first in-person retreats in three years at the Friends Meeting House there, um, which is a beautiful, beautiful place where I've been blessed to teach and to practice. And then there was uh, a longer multi-day intensive at Abamata in Austin many people in person and some online. So it was a, we're coming off of a, a lot of Dharma activity in our uh, larger family, larger family. Um, <clears throat> As I was sitting in the silence and stillness with you, I was very impressed with how a lot of the activity that happens when we come online was starting to settle. We were beginning to be very still uh, without too much distraction on screen. It's, it's a hard thing to do when you're on your own to feel like you're in the room uh, and to bring your stillness and focus, but it was beautiful to see that happening. And I was reminded as I did of uh, a little vignette story that most of you have probably heard, but it's attributed to Koto Sawaki Roshi, who was one of the wonderful teachers of the previous century in which most of us were born and, and grew up, <clears throat> in which the, so many people were uh, going to him to learn um, Zen practice and were uh, approaching him as a teacher. And he said something like, why do you want to sit Zazen? It's completely useless. Doing nothing is useless. And if you don't dedicate your life completely to this thing that is useless, your life will be useless. So it's this strange thing that I want to speak about today, the more difficult thing, I think, um, in, in Buddhist teachings about emptiness. When I, when I began this little series, I feel like I've been teaching a, a long retreat with different Dharma talks in it this month. Uh, we started out with, uh, you know, who am I without you? When she spoke about deep relationality, the mutuality of our being is the foundation of, of relational practice. And then the next week, uh, what does the world need? Extending that to the deep connectedness of all beings and how central love is to this practice. And then honoring Martin Luther King, uh, who called all these elements into action. And then that larger sense, his following Gandhi saying, you know, for me to be free, all of us have to be free, um, is the entry into the Bodhisattva vow. And in this past weekend, um, at Apamada, the intensive was about training and compassion and in Lancaster about returning, returning to the essence of our practice. So we're sort of in this, this arc. And all of these speak to the broad and essential fabric of practice, as well as the boundless kind of benefits 
you know, we just chanted, vast is the robe of liberation. A formless field of benefaction and wearing the universal teaching. I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. This broad and essential fabric of relationality, of deep connectedness and love, and of exhibiting these things in the world through practice. So today, I want to talk a little bit about, and it just sort of <laughs> hold on to your seats. You know, I know I'm going to speak about a lot of things, but um, it's it's what's moving in my my mind and my heart right now. Uh, the ways we inevitably move through all these with a kind of a polarity as we attempt to find the middle way. You know, when you sway back and forth on your seat in zazen with Krishna, you try to find that that middle space. So sometimes we practice with an outside-in view, emphasizing spiritual friendship and beloved community. And sometimes we practice with an inside-out view, emphasizing zazen and other forms of practice that seem more individual in a way. That outside-in, but, but ask yourself, I've emphasized spiritual friendship and community in the last few talks, but is this really the cause of liberation? Do spiritual friendships produce the freedom or is it the condition for awakening? It is, it is the ground of freedom and the container within which it opens. And warm, clear care provides not only just this ground of awakening, but also the nourishment for us to continue. This is what I've been emphasizing, but it's not a substitute for the practice only you can do. This one that seems useless, this seemingly doing nothing. If you were a musician and you had a wonderful teacher who would teach you your instrument and you had an instrument that was wonderful and you enjoyed your relationship with it, and you had friends that encouraged you and family that thought you were just wonderful, no matter how you played, you know, and you had an audience that you could um, perform for. None of that is playing. It's the conditions around which playing can happen. It's not the essential practice of actually demonstrating music. And also in this outside in view, Another little side road we can get trapped in is that freedom isn't just feeling good or receiving the consoling messages that we crave, like in the example of the, the music. You know, everything's going to be okay. We need that, but that's not the transformative turn. So sometimes in the outside in practices, which we need, we can get sidetracked. Inside out, our individual practices like Zazen can be really done alone although we have to do them on our own with others. It's a, a little edge there. And always trying harder, just sitting more, can confuse compulsion with devotion. I think that's a really common one. We can feel compelled and or the way I would say it in my old uh, religious language, we confuse guilt with devotion. Sitting is essential. It's the non-negotiable of our Zen way, and it's not enough. And so we have to balance wholesome effort and spacious rest to realize our inherent liberation and freedom, which is always with us. So I just wanted to speak about the, the way that, since I was emphasizing relationality, this outside in is really crucial, but the inside out is also crucial. And there are side roads that we can get lost on a little bit, trying to find the middle way. Here is a story I just heard recently, which I really liked and using the music metaphor once again, in this case, a, a music student um, was invited and accepted to attend a master class with one of this uh, student's heroes, musical hero. Uh, and I was telling the story the other day, and I, I actually don't know who it was, but I was imagining, like, if I was a cellist, if Yo-Yo Ma said, 
I'll give you a private lesson, you know, something like that. It's really amazing. And you can choose your own musician, whoever that might be. And so the student arrived um, and met the, the, the master that he was going to, or she was going to be with him. And the, uh, the senior teacher welcomed this young student with, with great kindness and was very inviting and encouraging and really warm. And they set up uh, their instruments and began to tune up and warm up and, and get things ready as one would do for instruction. And the senior teacher said, let's, let's place these scales to get ourselves moving, you know? And so they began to do that and they continued to do that. And they continued to do that through the entire time. And the students started getting irritated. Like, we're just going to play scales. And the teacher was very happy and very generous and kind. All they did was play scales. The teacher showed the student what was essential and joyful to do together. The fundamental continuous practice with the teacher and the student at their side, just sitting or just walking, whatever that essential practice is, just the scales. And there's a powerful teaching in that, of course, because this is the essential and broad fabric of practice, this weaving of alone and together. And what I want to, um, now I want to do a little improv about <laughs> is how we wake up to what binds us within this fabric of practice, this vast robe of liberation. And you may have heard this, this saying, now many of you probably haven't because at Apamata, we don't we don't use monastic forms quite so much, so we don't usually wear robes. But um, there's an old saying that uh, someone asked a teacher, what, is, uh, what does it mean to be a priest? And they said, mostly it's fabric management. But the joke doesn't work that well for you guys because you're usually in there seeing the priest, how complicated it is to do all the things that you have to do when you wear robes, other than a rakasu, which is more, more simple. But the, I can tell you, be intentional, careful, attention to the many layers and the robes and how one has to arrange them in order uh, to do something isn't just uh, management of something difficult or foreign. It actually represents the practice of inside out, outside in of clumsy human elegance. Always clumsy human elegance. It's the enactment of what's required, whether we wear the robes or not. You know, when I've worn them for years, and I still do now and then, I can feel the const their constraints and their limitations. It's kind of a pain in some ways, you know, to manage all this stuff. How they bind me, slow me down, prevent me from acting with just sort of ease. And I don't get to just follow my personal preferences because the robes require certain things of me. Because I respect them, I have to take off the rakasu or the okeso when I go into the bathroom because they're not to be brought into that space. When I have to pack, they have to be on top. And in a certain way, and I place them somewhere to carry it. You just can't put them on and on. So I can feel the binding quality, the directing quality, the limitations. And at the very same time, I feel the warm ways they hold me and inspire me. These robes represent the very body of Buddha. We say, you know, wearing the universal teaching, wearing the universal body. This is a powerful alchemy there. The robes that bind me are also the robes that unbind me. And apart from this idea of the robes, it turns out what binds you and what unbinds you 
are the same things. It's like the old saying goes, when you fall down on the ground, you use the ground to help yourself get up. This is this difficult thing to speak about. <clears throat> Let me take another little turn, see, see how it, it goes for you. The objects we perceive, like here on the screen, you see the little squares, you see the computer, you see what's around you, you hear things. Any object we perceive through our sense organs, we know are like everything else. They're contingent, they're ever-changing, there's no essential nature. So what you see and hear and taste and touch and smell and think, and yes, by the way, cognitions are another door of perception. The way we construct and are constructed by our, how our minds works. All of these things are impermanent and contingent. The things that we look at, see, deal with, all of these things, whatever in our perception. And the perceptions themselves in which we meet these impermanent interdependent objects are also contingent. They're also emergent qualities that are empty of an essential nature. For example, what is seen and the seeing are both constructions. What's heard and the hearing, what's thought and the thinker, it's the coming together of the sense object and the sense organ that creates what we call reality. Now, I know this is, very, this is not beginning stuff, but it's important to begin to stretch your mind and heart a little bit around. Curiously, the perceiver and what's perceived are both empty of an inherent existence and are conditioned and co-arise like everything else. Perceptions are a great example of dependent co-arising, the meeting of the sense object and the sense organ. They're like vines that, and strands that twist together and create the tangle of inside and out. And the, a, a big thick book called the Visuddhimagga, it's translated as the Path of Purification. It was written in the fifth century, very, very early Buddhist teachings. There's a, a little thing that is said right in the beginning. The whole book begins with this. Some of you may have heard it. The inner tangle and the outer tangle, this generation is entangled in a tangle. Tell me, Gautama, the Buddha, who succeeds in untangling the tangle? So that's 2,500 years ago. This generation is entangled in a tangle. <laughs> if they only knew what it's like now. The inner tangle and the outer tangle. Inner tangle, outer tangle. This generation is entangled in a tangle. So they ask the Buddha, who succeeds in untangling the tangle? Well, I'm going to get back to part of that story, but first we have to have another analogy because this stuff is so, so crazy. In one of the sutras, the Buddha took a scarf, a kata. You know these things? You see, you know, the Dalai Lama, you know, they'll put it on, you know. It's a, it's a very traditional thing that, that would have been around. And <clears throat> the Buddha was trying to explain this. So he took a scarf that he had, and he tied a knot in it. And he asked the people who are listening to him, what is this? You know, and if I ask you, like, what, what is this? You guys, it's not, not rocket science. It's like, there's a scarf with a knot. It's really easy. It's very straightforward. Then he tied five more knots in the same scarf. And if this were to continue, in fact, you know, if I took these five knots and then made a knot of that one, you, you see what happens. It might even turn into something that didn't even resemble 
a scarf. It might appear as something more solid and apparently dense and unlike the scarf that we started with. However, he pointed out that unlike, <clears throat> well, he said it this way, <clears throat> even though it's knotted up, fundamentally, this scarf is not damaged or broken within all of this. And if, uh, if one of the knots is unraveled, then it's revealed as whole. It's completely itself, but it's also completely itself all along, even if it's constricted. And so the Buddha then pulls on one end of the scarf and says to some of the people, and Ananda says, is this the way to untie the scarf, untie the knots? They say, no. And so he pulls on the other end, said, is, does this undo it? And they say, no. So he pulls on both ends. Well, that makes it tighter. And isn't this how we practice? I'll pull from the outside. I'll pull from the inside. I'll pull on both ends and it just gets tighter and tighter. So the Buddha then asked Ananda, how do you untie the knot? How does this get untied? So the scarfness is revealed. And he says, well, you have to do it by going into each knot and pulling from inside here. You're penetrating the knottiness to untangle the knot. And with each knot, each of the tangles, eventually you come to a place when it's released. But that's only by being intimate with the tangle. And when the last movement, like I just did, the scarf is left empty and spacious and relaxed and free. No more knotting, only the scarf. So we pull and we push and we wish and we dream and we try and we try with efforts which use the very things which bind us into knots to tighten them. Because we're so enchanted with our perceptions, sights, sounds, thoughts, all these things. And we think that through those, basically which turn out to be attachments and aversions, our practice itself, it, it ties us up into spiritual knots, which become blindfolds. You can't see your way into freedom or hear your way into liberation or think your way into release. But you can begin to undo the knots of perception and rest in this primary awareness, which was always there, just like the scarf was always there in the knot. It's, of course, an amazingly good thing to be aware of your thoughts and feelings, to notice them, to name them, to develop this capacity for witnessing. But it's the space that's already there where we find freedom, not the, not the, the noticing itself is useful, but it isn't the freedom. The analyzing might be useful, but it's not the untying. Noticing and naming use these like, incredibly amazing perceptual abilities we have, but they're useful for identifying the knots and working through naughty situations and conditioning but they don't untangle the essential knot we're talking about. They may be very helpful to soften the knots of conditioning, our stories, our neurotic fixations, even trauma over time, if skillful use. I've taught that. Many of you have practiced those things. It's really, really useful. I'm not talking about that. I'm asking us to go further because the freedom which the Buddha teaches and which is offered through our Zen ancestors is liberation within the knotting, resting in the space that exists whether these knots are unbound or not. And I know this kind of seems abstract, but it's not my point to try to confuse you. But I want, I want us to keep in mind that all wholesome 
and transformative spiritual practices, no matter what their source, doesn't have to be Buddhist, is going to take us beyond simply feeling better or even getting better. These lovely things do happen in shared practice, but we're not healed through wholesome and diligent practice in the ways we tip, typically think of in this conventional psychological framework. Those things are, we benefit from. Healing is wonderful, and I will encourage it, and hope you encourage it and help each other. It's shared and sustained whole goodness. But we can step even further, right alongside the necessary and loving healing, which offers us the ground of awakening and the nourishment to continue. But all of this is only possible if we engage Zazen. The practice of letting go of all manipulation and trying, just sitting, and apparently looks like doing nothing, but bringing ourselves fully to this nothing in which we rest our all this perceptual apparatus and take the backward step, as Dogen said. Because, you know, there's no substitute for this practice only we can do as we sort of wake up and reclaim the nature of our own hearts, our sort of scarfness underneath it all, beyond conditioning, the scarf that's already there within the knots, where we actualize the fundamental point. We come home, we express ourselves more fully as we are and receive the world more fully just as it is. You know, feeling bad, I feel bad, is a perceptual description we use to describe temporary conditioning. I feel bad. Feeling good is also a perceptual description we use to describe something temporary. But neither is liberation within conditioning. It's not going from feeling bad to feeling good. That space is within the knot all along. Being caught and feeling bad is, means you're a caught Buddha that feels bad. Being free and feeling good means you're a free Buddha feeling good. I know I'm messing with your heads today. And going back and forth, what does this mean in our meditation practice, our zazen? A student asked Joshu, you know, major teacher, what is meditation? Joshu said, it's not meditation. Student said, well, what do you mean it's not meditation? He said, it's alive. I would say it's aliveness, it's life. And the Tao Te Ching, it says, a pot is made from clay. The center is empty. That way the vessel can be used. It's the emptiness that makes it function. This is what I'm trying to speak to in these crazy ways. And when our practice is the space of aliveness, moving freely, rather than just a personal instrumental activity to get us something new or better, then we shift our attitude from, what good is the path to me? What good is this path to me? Becomes, how can I be a vessel of the way? How do we untangle the tangle? <clears throat> you remember the the thing I started with, inner tangle and the outer tangle, this generation. <clears throat> In the Visuddha Magga, what came before it, it said, a wise, I'm going to change the pronouns here to be general, a wise person established in virtue, develops consciousness and understanding. Then a student, ardent and sagacious, succeeds in untangling the tangle. A wise person established in virtue, develops consciousness and understanding. Then such a student, ardent and sagacious, old fashioned words there, succeeds in untangling the tangle. And I'm just gonna briefly, line by line, when a wise person established in virtue, the Buddha is saying, this is how you untangle the tangle. When a wise person established in virtue, that's practicing with the precepts. This brings it down to our everyday practice. We practice with the precepts. Second line develops consciousness and understanding. This is our self-study and mindfulness. 
in order to step beyond constantly self-referencing ourselves. Third line, then as a student, ardent and sagacious, meaning then as a student, we enact diligent, wise care, apamata, living by vow. Then he or she succeeds in untangling the tangle. This is life as it is. Everything belongs. Wakefulness is our birthright, so it's always and already happening. And it can be realized using the very things that we now feel are binding us. Who am I without you? Aliveness as relationship. What does the world need now? Aliveness as love and care. What did Martin Luther King and others dream? Aliveness as inclusion and justice. And how do we untie the knots? Intimacy. It's aliveness. So I know that's a long and maybe more complicated thing, but I'm trying to do my job as a Zen teacher here, you know, um, and speak about some of the things at the heart of all of the relationality, which is so crucial to the way that we, we are with each other. But I'm sure it might bring some questions, which I would be happy to engage you. We'll see what we can do with the knots. Hi, Flynn. Hello. Um, so that spoke to me. Um, I've been having a kind of, I think it's a quiet kind of protest at sitting. So I haven't been sitting. Mm -hmm. um, but it was really intriguing listening to you. I think early on when you said something about the ground we fall on is the ground we get up from. I think you said something like yeah. that. Yeah, we fall on the ground, but then you use the ground to get up. Yeah. And so I was I was with the kind of um the quality of of something of the protest. It's like there's this this energy in it and this frown and um you know it's kind of like it's 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 pissed off. Yes. And it's um and then I was with like, well, does that feel that different to how I kind of get quite determined and focused for practice mm -hmm. as well? Um, so, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I, I, I haven't managed to like sit with the protest. Mm -hmm. um, That's one whole you know of course yeah as you were talking I was thinking oh what would it be like to sit with this this quality and like look at a picture of you know as I what came to mind was that photo of Suzuki Roshi on the front of his book or a picture of you or Josh looking back at me and just kind of be in it um but it's yeah I think I, would, I need to do that. Well, and also I have a suggestion you might try. S mm. Sit literally in front of a mirror. Yeah. And experiment. You know, show your protest face. Mm. Solve the protest face. Play around. Mm, yeah, yeah. Don't get stuck anywhere. Don't worry about Don't, you know, don't pull on the knots and make them tighter. Mm. Play around. And don't sit for a while. See what that's like. Well, I've done that for about a month. Okay. And so now there's some other energy. Look at that face. Mm. Seem like a little meh. Yeah, that doesn't really go anywhere much. Uh, but you can sit, sit next to the protest. Mm. As if she were, you were sitting next to her on a cushion next to you in the zindo. Mm. But you, 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 you sit with that part yeah 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 it's good just to that it's great it's great to say it to name it uh -huh. without um, hugging just sit mm. 
Yeah, because it, it feels really core. Yeah. Oh, you know, mm-hmm. it's like it's there's a familiarity to it. Right. In the midst of that knot of protest is freedom. Mm. Yeah, I do trust that. Yeah. Very good. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for bringing us a very, very practical, very every day. It's good. We have Suzanne next. Hi, Suzanne. Hello, Flynn. So good today. And you did mess with my mind. And um, that's perfectly fine with me. My job, actually. Yeah, my mind seems so much more amenable to be messed with these days. Um, But I noticed that I was tagging on that very early quote you gave from Joshu Roshi, is that correct? About about, why do you want to sit with Zazen, it's completely useless? Oh, Koto Sawaki, yeah. Okay, well, this morning I listened to a segment of a commencement address that Bodhisattva jazz musician John Baptiste gave this past year, um, and uh, he he talked about um, he encouraged stud- the students or the graduates to meditate and to pray every day. Mm-hmm. You know, this is not typical commencement speech stuff. Um, he had told by a jazz musician. Yes, yeah, by a jazz musician. Um, and then he said, "Here, I want you to do two things. Well, one thing." Take out a piece of paper and write down everything you love. And he listed some of the things he loves uh, as an example. And, and, um, and then he, he talked a bit more. And then he said, now I want you to write down another list. And that is of the people that you love and the people you care about. And then he said, put the two together. Bring everything you love to everyone you love and then you'll have a good life mm-hmm. and that's what that quote reminded me of yes yeah, yeah. inside out in inside outside in outside in exactly exactly yeah. it, it warmed my heart it started my day and uh you're warming my heart in the middle of my day so thank you so much <laughs> well i know that you've had powerful experiences associated with your recent COVID experience which is like being in a long meditation retreat where you didn't just drop your mind, it was taken from you in a way. <laughs> so you got to open some of the spaces in the middle of all the knots. Yes. Yeah. And that really made so much sense to me. Yeah. It's a great analogy. The Buddha was pretty good at those things. And I think I said to you, uh, my efforting is stopping. I, yes. don't, I don't need to work at untying those knots anymore. No, no. But thank you so much. Thank you. We have Chris. Hey, Chris, good to see you. Mm-hmm. Good to see you, Flint. Um, I'm trying to think how to make a really complex story really simple for. <laughs> sort of sort of like your teaching i guess yeah i know it's a hard one to make it it's complex but how can i i still need to offer it so um for about a month i've been going through a process of letting go of a lot a lot of the things that to me are part of my my core identity, who I am, Um, things that I, things about career, things about um, uh, personal activities that I do, um, and a, a big piece of that has been that I don't, feels like the quality of my thinking has dropped way down 
when you were what brought this, what brought me forward to uh, to speak to you is that while you were giving your Dharma talk, I really was hardly understanding any of it, mm-hmm. um, which is not what I'm accustomed to is hearing things that are maybe way out of my ability to truly understand, but I can understand it partly and mm-hmm. engage with it in a way that does expand my thinking. And today, not at all. Um, the metaphor of the pot, I really like that. That's that I'm going to retain. It's the enclosed, it's the space that is that makes the pot useful. But this is very frightening. And you know, this is it isn't just this today, it's that I've had about a month of this. It mm-hmm. happened fast and hard. And I I understand the the psychology that's going on within that, but um this is this is really scary. And I'm from an everyday practical cognitive, you think you've lost some cognitive ability, at least for now. Yeah. So you might be a Buddha who now thinks like this. Yeah. But still a Buddha, a Buddha whose mind works like this. You You can can do things with your doctor. You can do things with your therapist. All of those things to to help you if help required. And I hope that you will. That's wholesome. Even as you work on those knots, your true nature, the way you're seen by God, whatever you want to call it, is still there complete in that space in which not much thinking is going on. I've been telling people for a long time that my my practice, I, I, I trust it bone deep. And I'm not, you know, I'm when I say that, I mean it, but this is where it gets really tough. Yeah, this is where it really meets the bone. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's why I'm speaking about these things that are hard and difficult and aren't just the consoling kind of things. It's like, no, this is pushing down into the marrow. And it's not important that you understand it. It's important that you take the ride and notice what happens to your own mind, what you think is your mind as you do it. And there are things to do that are very wholesome and important, I think, hope you'll do medically and psychologically. And for you to recognize your fullness and completeness, even in the midst, of however those conditions change, then you're understanding what Buddhist practice is. I've got some of that. I don't know that I guess I won't ever have enough. Understanding understanding it is part of the cognitive perceptual ability that doesn't isn't your mind. It's the space between the thoughts. It's this it's the silence between the sounds. It's the spaciousness that I'm asking you to step into. Yeah, okay. Use the space that you've been given right now and see what it opens for you. Not new thoughts. Okay. Even as hopefully some thought returns, of course. Yeah. Enjoy the space in the pot. Thank you. So I want to ask about the idea of sitting alone and sitting with people. And um, like, like, Pre-COVID, when we were in the Zendo and sitting side by side, I really could notice a big difference than sitting at my house. Uh-huh. And now we, I do so many more Zoom things, and I'm noticing that I'm alone in my house, but I'm also sitting with others because I can see their squares. And uh, that, that and you know some of those people, and you've been with them in the past. Yeah, yeah. In, I'm in your body. You're in my body, even though. Yeah. This is virtual in a certain way. And even those that I've only known in their squares, I feel like I know and am connected with. Um, But there's 
I still have something that is like, am I safe? Like, am I safe when I open up into this sitting space? Like, I still feel safer if I'm at home. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I don't know, there's, it, you know, I'm, I've been mean? working with the idea of like, like, like if I'm sitting completely by myself, I actually am still sitting with other people. Yep. So I'm trying, I'm trying to, I'm trying to feel that, not know that. What's the unsafety? <sighs> Am I safe? What are you asking? I guess it's like a, a little child part asking about my spiritual life as a kid and not feeling safe in a spiritual place and or a religious place or a fundamentalist safe? place. How are you what? not safe? How was I not safe? There was a lot of judgment. Okay. So what you mean is like being verbally and energetically attacked. Yeah. Uh-huh. Which has never happened with you guys, but but I still think that there's there's something there that must think that or or not think that but feel that because I have so much of attraction to uh being alone. When you enter sacred space, your body uh guards against attack yeah and you're drawn to sacred space yeah and you're fearful of it yeah there's the knot there's the knot when you when we first met you were invited into a sacred space to watch a wedding we told the story before but yeah but it was weird because you came into the sacred space and there was no attack right i and 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 no hooks there were no, yeah. there was no attack. There were no hooks. There was no lead you. Yeah. Uh-huh. And now that's what you're offering. When you meet with other people, when you teach your classes, you're offering relationships with people. You're actually offering Dharma a lot of the time, actually. Yeah. Without hooks. Yeah. Without attacking. That, that's the place you'll find the freedom. Not as a, a child looking for protection, but as a bodhisattva offering it. And so you're saying, uh, I, I have, like, like Chris, I halfway get what you're saying. That's pretty good. <laughs> um. If you continue to work to try to not feel unsafe, there are psychological things you can do and have done, which will be helpful. There are experiences you can have and you'll continue, which have been helpful. All that will happen, you know, on the conditioned level, you know. But when you are in front of a student, whether they have a camera in their hand or they're asking about Appamata or whatever, and you can feel yourself called into that sacred space yeah. with them and your offerings. So there it is right there. Yeah. It, there. The question of safety is not relevant. It just doesn't come up, does it? No. No. Because you're no longer that little one. You're just the Dharma moving. It's alive. It's alive. It's aliveness. That's what I mean. Okay. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for all, you know. Yes, for everybody. <laughs> so together we'll remind ourselves what the central practice is. The four practice principles. This is a little more down to earth now. <laughs> and thank you for going on the ride with me. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering. Holding to self-centered thoughts. Exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering. Holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, 
life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. There's a kata blessing to everyone, everyone, everyone. <laughs> and then you would take it and then you would put it back on me, of course. So. Thank you so much, Flint. Thank you for such a rich teaching. I'm sure it'll be unraveling in us all for quite some time. We'll be unraveled by it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, th thank you all to everybody for, for being here. And um, and if you feel moved to offer Dana, then please do to Flint or for any of the events at Appamada to support and continue the offerings, then please do go to appamada.org and you'll find opportunities there. And, and if you'd like to continue to meet and share, then please do pop yourself into gallery view and I'll be joining you for a further 30 minutes. Thank you all so much. Maybe we can unravel some knots. <laughs> Thank you.